Hello, and welcome to Baker McKenzie's Resilience, Recovery, and Renewal podcast series, dedicated to helping your organization navigate the full continuum of the COVID-19 pandemic and beyond. Whether you're managing the immediate crisis, stabilizing operations, or evolving your business, this podcast will cover key insights to help strengthen your organization's capacity to respond, recover, and thrive. My name is Jennifer Northam, and I've spent over 20 years as a producer and journalist covering international business issues for leading news organizations. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. Today, we're going to revisit and further explore a topic that's been very popular with our listeners, which is how to build a better supply chain for the future. In this episode, we'll talk to two experts who have done a tremendous amount of work interviewing and researching countless companies around the world to find out what their challenges are as they look to not only strengthen, but transform their supply chains by diversifying operations across Asia Pacific and beyond. We'll also discuss the impact of the global trade wars, government intervention, as well as investment and financing trends. I'm excited to introduce our guests today. They're Anne Pettard, partner and head of international commercial and trade for Asia Pacific at Baker McKenzie. Also joining us is Ben Simfendorfer, Ben is the founder and CEO of Silk Road Associates, a consultancy business based in Hong Kong. Ben advises a range of Fortune 500 multinationals on their commercial strategies in Asia. He's also author of The Rise of the New East and The New Silk Road. And just so you're aware, we're recording this podcast from our homes in light of the COVID-19 social distancing rules. Anne and Ben, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks. You've both co-authored the recently published report entitled Supply Chains Reimagined, Recovery and Renewal in Asia Pacific and Beyond. It's a fascinating read because it provides insights taken from a broad range of multinationals from around the world and across multiple industries. It not only tackles the pressure COVID-19 has placed on supply chains, but it also looks at other challenges such as global trade tensions, financing trends and government intervention. Now, Ben, if we could start with you, can we first discuss why it's so important for every company to really do that deep dive and look at their operational capacity and supply chain during this time? We are witnessing a historic change in the global supply chain. We're going to see more change over the next five years than over the last 20. And we aren't seeing the reverse of globalization. We aren't going back to the 1980s. But what we are instead moving towards is a new system entirely. I've worked in the region for 20 years and I haven't seen anything like this before. The sheer number of companies, the sheer number of industries. Now, it used to be just a consumer goods story, uh, clothing, footwear, household electronics, but but now it's across all industries. So every firm will be impacted in in some way. Now, the challenge for leadership teams is understanding what matters most for their firm. And I'm not surprised because there are a range of disruptors we're dealing with. The the US-China trade war is driving companies to uh, diversify production across Asia. COVID-19 is forcing companies to rethink single-source supply risk. There's been a a breakdown of trust between uh, buyers and suppliers because of the collapse in demand. And that's even before we begin to talk about uh, automation and and digitation. So leading companies are moving on these issues, but but not all companies are. And the gap between the leaders and the laggards is beginning to widen. And Anne, what did you uncover in putting this report together? And what are some of those key challenges? Ben's already touched on a few of them, but some of the key challenges you found that companies are facing today? Thanks. Look, I I can certainly talk about some of the the key challenges, but the big point to make is there's no one issue. Companies are having to do so many things at once just to keep their supply chains running and plan for the future. And 
I'm trying to think of the right analogy here. So uh, I think it might be the variety act with uh, many spinning plates on sticks all needing to be kept spinning at the same time. And one of the things that report illustrates to me is that businesses are just needing to deal with multiple supply chain disruption issues at once. And some of those might seem to conflict with each other as well, just to add to the problem. So, you know, for example, there's of course immense pressure to keep supply chain costs down, like finding low cost production. That's not new. But at the same time, businesses are needing to factor in geopolitical issues more than before, carefully watching, for example, trade war developments. What we've seen this year, increased pressure to onshore production of certain goods. And then, you know, businesses are also needing to factor in supply chain issues that might be really important, particularly in consumer goods and retail, you know, issues really important to their consumer base, like sustainability or or modern slavery. Many people listening would have um, good familiarity with codes of conduct that their businesses are introducing to require their suppliers to, you know, take the right steps to deal with these sorts of sustainability and, and modern slavery workshop issues. And then businesses now are also looking to the future for how they might shockproof the supply chains and plan for the future, you know, with things like digital transformation projects. And then, of course, you do need to recognise the current situation. We've still got lots of businesses just navigating the current supply chain issues they've experienced this year with, you know, rapidly fluctuating demand, transportation delays, etc. And so I better stop there because I think all my my spinning plates are about to come um, crashing down. As part of your research, you interviewed a number of industry thought leaders to uncover those key trends for supply chains. Now, there were really a variety of sectors that you looked at, but there were five key trends that really stood out. I'd love to go through each of them and discuss how some sectors have been affected. Now, Ben, it's no surprise the first trend that was highlighted in your report was U.S.-China trade relations. Can you elaborate on that one for me a bit more? Yeah, I spend a lot of time speaking with supply chain executives around the region. And, you know, Zoom makes my life easier, not harder. I'm certainly spending less time on the plane. But there's a a striking point that comes out of those conversations. And for companies selling to the United States, whether they're American or not, the U.S.-China trade war is the number one issue for those executives, not COVID-19. And few of those executives expect relations to get any better. Now, I sit on the board of the governors at the American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong, and we speak regularly with officials in Washington, Beijing, and so on. And it's clear that whatever happens after the upcoming U.S. presidential elections, U.S.-China trade relations will remain very tense. There's a great deal of uncertainty out there. And that's the uncertainty that's driving companies to protect themselves by changing the way they produce products or the way they buy products. You know, I know of one large American car company that at this moment is conducting a risk review of their entire supply chain, asking what do we need to produce in China? What do we need to be relocating out either to uh, another country or back into the United States itself? Taiwanese server manufacturers have been relocating production back to Taiwan uh, over the last 12 months just to ensure that they can still sell high-end servers to the big American technology firms. And we're going to see a lot more of this uh, over the next 12 months or the next few years. And Anne and and Ben, feel free to jump in on this as well. The second trend really had to do with supply chain diversification strategies. And, you know, many industries such as the TMT and consumer goods sectors started this process really pre-COVID. So what are some of those key challenges companies face when when they look at those other markets and supply chain diversification? One of the biggest challenges that that I keep seeing, you know, as a repeat issue across industries is, you know, there's sort of no like-for-like relocation to another jurisdiction. There's always quite a few things that um, 
are a bit different. So, you know, the, the new jurisdiction in some way is not going to meet all requirements or, and, and so require things to be done a different way. So when a business, for example, looks to relocate production or perhaps assembly to a new jurisdiction, the big question is, well, how will that new jurisdiction meet their requirements? So, for example, you know, can the new jurisdiction uh, produce to scale, you know, same scale as before, or you know, particularly, um, you know, if you're moving to a more developing jurisdiction, do they have the infrastructure to support um, getting the goods from the factory to the port? Also, you know, is there the right skill set there to manufacture the goods? And, you know, I had a matter last year where, you know, the client had, had planned to relocate to another jurisdiction for assembly of quite a complex product, but realised uh, they just couldn't source the skills they needed in that jurisdiction to assemble the product. And that, you know, meant they needed to look at another solution. Another example I've unfortunately seen a few times is clients look to transport goods, you know, via different routes. And particularly if the products require special care, like refrigeration, then, you know, you need to really check that, that the port can support uh, the refrigeration. And, you know, there really are a lot of things to check on the uh, due diligence process there. Anne's point on, on scale, I think, is particularly interesting for us. You know, there's a lot of talk in the in the media, the Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, about firms leaving China to go elsewhere. And often these stories are a little bit exaggerated. The reality is, is there's not many places to go. There's not a simple alternative for China. Vietnam and Mexico have captured the large share of production, but, but these markets aren't big. Vietnam is perhaps the biggest global winner uh, from supply chain change, but, but Vietnam, it's already full. I was in Ho Chi Minh just 12 months ago, speaking with a range of, of developers and factory owners, and it was very clear that factories are finding it much harder to acquire land uh, in Ho Chi Minh or, or Hanoi or other sort of manufacturing clusters. And again, that's no surprise. So we have data analytics that shows that China's southern manufacturing hub has as much developed industrial land as the rest of Southeast Asia combined. So even if factories are looking to move, it's not always clear where there is capacity for them to move to, particularly over the, uh, the next few years and before we start to see more industrial parks come online. That's really interesting, Ben. And talking about China and getting back to China as a place to do business, I mean, despite what you had said earlier, even about US-China trade relations being a, a real issue for most companies, there was a, a business confidence survey that was just recently done in June of this year by the European Chamber of Commerce. And they found that despite COVID, despite those trade tensions, 65% of its members still rank China among their top three destinations for new investment. I mean, you're talking to these Fortune 500 companies on a regular basis about their commercial strategies. Uh, do you agree with that number? And, and why, despite all of the challenges, is China such an attractive investment? I do agree. But it's important to provide context. Uh, European firms see uh, China very differently to, to US firms. Europe's trade relations with China are still challenging, but, but they're far less tense. Now, I was speaking with the, the president of the European Chamber of Commerce in, in China uh, just a, a few weeks ago. He's an old friend and he's very clear on this point. He says that European firms will continue to invest in their largest and fastest growing markets. Well, for many European firms, China is the largest and fastest growing market. So it makes sense to continue to invest in China. And that's not only true for European firms. Uh, as part of the report, we were speaking with a large uh, American car company who made exactly the same point. They said, we sell more cars in China than we do in the US. So if we've got to invest in new capacity, it, it needs to be in China. 
And that fourth trend that um, you uncovered was digitalization and how sustainability really impacts that supply chain operation. Um, two really interesting topics. Let's, let's kind of split them up a little bit and take a look at digitalization at first. How is AI and data-driven solutions really helping companies pinpoint those weaknesses in their supply chain? Well, we are uh, still, I think, just at the beginning of the data revolution. People have their different phrases uh, about data being the new oil. I, I like data is the new soil, you know, thing, things are going to grow. But in this space with supply chain, it's very much all about the data and the smarts that can be used to analyse the data. And Ben's already given some great examples. But, yeah, the world is in this data revolution and supply chains are no exception. In recent months, there's been a rapid increase in supply chain apps on the market, um, you know, that can use, you know, government data, geographic data, transportation data, and, and then the data from the businesses themselves to do things like identify potential disruptions to supply chain, perhaps um, where you know, outbreaks might be predicted going forward and, and be the more problematic areas for producing goods. Or um, even there's an app um, I've seen for um, finding alternate suppliers. So I guess you, you name it in the supply chain, there's going to be an app for that. But this is in, in conjunction with projects that businesses have already been doing to, you know, one, introduce greater monitoring in, in their supply chain, um, greater security, particularly use of, of blockchain technologies that we've been seeing. And then an area which I find really interesting is increased robotics, you know, for example, to reduce dependency on, on manual labour. So all these digital transformation, modernisation um, projects They've really got the potential to transform businesses, particularly when you're looking at data cares needed um, in relying on the data to make predictions. And, you know, it, it, it really is important still as businesses, you know, probably are going to grow more dependent on data to run their supply chains that they still have, you know, appropriate human invention and um, monitoring of the products to uh, make sure they're actually measuring what they think they um, are meant to be measuring. And let's talk about sustainability, because that's a really interesting one, too. I mean, how is sustainability really impacting supply chain operations going forward? Sustainability has been a real um, issue coming to the fore in the last year, you know, really large in the media. But, you know, many businesses have had sustainability on their radar for some years, and it's only growing in importance. And we're talking about sustainability from, you know, raw material, production, farming, manufacturing through to you know the packaging and waste disposal you know you've got to look at the whole life cycle there similarly workforce issues you know particularly modern slavery has been a big focus of businesses and and frankly governments with a lot of jurisdictions enacting modern slavery laws in the in the past few years and that's also combined with the rise of the informed consumer we're wanting to know where our goods are made we're wanting to know that our goods have been made appropriately and people haven't been exploited in making those goods. So the sustainability and workforce issues, you know, they're going to remain a key focus of supply chain disruption going forwards and businesses are going to need to, you know, factor in more and more how they will, for example, demonstrate to their consumer base or demonstrate to regulators that throughout their supply chain, all levels, they are meeting sustainability and modern slavery goals. And I guess one slight prediction I have is the currently sort of lower cost production economies, you know, those who get sustainability and workforce protection issues right, they have a good chance of, you know, really getting a competitive advantage, you know, in their areas of production going forward. 
And that final trend that you covered in your research was um, the government intervention and strategic priorities. Now, we all know there's a shortage of PP and medical supplies, which could persist for years without you know, real strategic government intervention. What are the key constraints and what are governments doing to help really spur domestic production? China is a, a very large producer of specific products, PPE, including uh, surgical masks, plastic goggles, surgical gowns and so forth. Uh, as well as API. These are the raw materials that we use to make medicines. And there's been a lot of concern about the world's dependency on China for these products. But until COVID-19, you know, governments haven't acted. But well, now they, they are acting. So PPE equipment is actually made across a large range of countries. It, but it just isn't made at a China price or China volume. But if governments get involved and they're prepared to offer guaranteed contracts at prices where companies can make a profit producing domestically, well, well that's really compelling. Uh, so we expect to see a lot more of that going forward. The API industry is, is slightly more challenging, largely because it, it's very much dependent on the chemical industry uh, and the growing environmental challenges around uh, chemical production. So you also need a large chemical industry uh, in order to be able to produce APIs, and not every country has this. So that the level of government intervention is going to, to have to be higher, the cost will also be higher, uh, and not all governments may be prepared to take that. Um, it all takes time, and we're not going to see change overnight, especially for APIs. PPE that production, though, we, we could see a, a radical shift over the next 12, 24 months, and it's certainly going to become part of the, the political discourse. And did you want to chip in as well on that topic? I think government intervention, you've got to also sort of give it a fairly broad meaning um, as well. You know, we've talked about government intervention in the form of, you know, increased tariffs or requiring certain goods to be made in country you know, or, um, you know, we've seen in many jurisdictions governments placing restrictions on exporting, you know, PPE or ex exporting food in some cases as well. There's those sorts of restriction government intervention measures. But government intervention to support economies and particularly looking at, you know, rebuilding economies coming out of COVID or even, you know, longer term looking at, you know, well, how am I going to develop the supply chains in the future? The sort of incentive packages that governments will implement, I think, will also be very important. Um, a frequent question we're getting at the moment from clients is to uh, review all the different government incentive packages, you know, across various jurisdictions that they're trying to encourage investment in their jurisdiction. You know, come over to my jurisdiction and set up a factory and I'll give you certain tax concessions or breaks with company law or, or even, you know, ability to acquire real estate, reduction of red tape. You know, another thing that I've been seeing is businesses really putting the hard word on governments and saying, well, what are you going to do for us in terms of policies? You know, what concessions are you going to make with, you know, particularly research and development tax incentives or um, a particular issue, um, you know, Australia often has is the ability to bring in skilled workers on, on visas. But, you know, what government incentives might there be, you know, to build up you know what for example Australia wants to do is which is build up advanced manufacturing capability so you know I think it's going to be really interesting to see how governments grapple with those issues and how they design the policies to attract that investment dollar as well from businesses. Now let's get out our crystal balls for a minute before we leave you Ben there's a real kind of fine line that companies need to walk when they're managing their tactical versus their strategic thinking when it comes to planning for say the next 12 months and even beyond. 
I mean, talking to various companies around the world, what advice do you have for those that are really going through this right now and trying to be forward thinking while while dealing with the here and now? So your reference to tactical and strategic is really important. And we need to develop two separate teams, a tactical team and a strategic team. And we need to recognize that the focus of these two teams could be quite different so that the tactical team may be dealing with uh, short term supplier relationships, liquidity uh, uh, issues and so forth, whether the strategy team needs to be uh, reviewing supply chain exposure. Uh, acquiring market analytics and, and intelligence, uh, and then developing you know resiliency op- options. So the, the two teams need to be talking to each other. They need to be communicating with each other. They may even have though possibly competing agendas. And so for that reason, you, you do need to s- have a split between them, a wall between them, to ensure that their their focus stays on where it should be. Interesting. And and what about financial trends? I mean, we're starting to see some new trends emerge as strategic transactions and acquisitions become more attractive. What have you been seeing in this space so far? The supply chain disruption of this year, it's turned usual funding and M&A behaviour on on its head, at least for now. Combined with that is, you know, in in this different world we have at the moment, uh, you know, I touched upon government regulatory intervention before, but, you know, things like allowing businesses to keep doors open in in what might otherwise be trading while insolvent arrangements or government support being provided to keep doors open, you know, that also, I think, is changing the investment behaviour. We've seen changes to normal bank lending patterns for product supplies, for example. And then we've got the emergence of businesses that are critical to supply chain disruption and, you know, their worth and their value in doing that is really coming to the fore. So things like warehousing will become even more valuable as we go forward, particularly as some businesses move from you know the just-in-time approach of ordering goods in as needed to just-in-case for some goods. Just having enough products there on, on hand to um, tide their over in an emergency situation. And then also you know logistics supplies or um, particularly businesses who produce sophisticated logistics technology. They're going to become very attractive investment targets. This array of factors likely means that there's going to be you know, an increase in opportunities going forward you know, for the strategic investor, particularly the strategic investor who has the right crystal ball with them. Finally, I'd love for you both to answer my last question before we leave. As we see demand slowly increasing and attention starting to shift towards that recovery phase, what is your advice for those companies who are looking to move their supply chain? And what are three things that companies should consider? What are those top three things? And Anne, let's start with you. Okay, well, the first one for me is do your homework. Don't make significant supply chain changes lightly. In the past, supply chain relocation projects that we worked on, they were often largely tax and tariff based. But these days, you know, there's so many more other issues needing to be considered. So, so you've just got to do that homework. Number two, I think, is keep reassessing any decision to relocate production. If I'm wanting to you know, change a significant aspect of my supply chain driven by one factor, such as a change to tariff, or I think another jurisdiction is going to be a lower cost of production or provide a better route to market, you've got to keep reassessing that as you do your due diligence and, and you know, be prepared to make the decision to stay where you are if that's going to be, you know, the better outcome for the business. Important that that um, companies, you know, don't sort of commit at all costs to a new option, but remain flexible to, to change it up. And then that takes me to my third point. You don't just need a plan B, you probably need a plan C, D, etc. 
in the supply chain relocation projects I've worked on, rarely um, can the business you know implement the changes originally conceived. So they've got to be adaptable as new issues are uncovered. So for example, you know, I might think I can have the goods produced you know more cost effectively in a new jurisdiction, but when I look into that new jurisdiction, not all the products can be made there. I need to source them from it elsewhere. So I need to work out what are the different things that I, different variables that I can change in order to achieve the, the business's goals. And Ben, what's your top three pieces of advice? Top three. Well, look, you, you need to start reviewing your supply chain now. This is a permanent shift. Uh, it's not going to go away. So I want to echo Anne's point about the need to review and constantly review. It's an ongoing process that shouldn't stop. My second point would be this needs to be a board level issue. Uh, You need oversight from a a decision maker. You need cross business line input. Too often these types of projects get siloed within a single business line or or they get tasked to a junior uh, employee. And so they never make it all the way up to the board level. There's too much at risk today. Uh, We've spoken about the sheer number of disruptors out there. It's got to sit with the board. My third and final point would be you, you can't change everything overnight. Very complex decisions. And perhaps best to start with a few products, even component parts. And then if it works, scale it up. So you need to be quite agile in your approach. Thank you both. That was a great conversation. And it's a really insightful report that you've both released. And and for those listeners who really want to read that full report, Anne, where can they go to find it? Look, please go to bakermckenzie.com forward slash supply chains reimagined. Great. Thank you. Thank you both. For those listening, we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to send any comments or questions to 3rpodcast at bakermckenzie.com. That's the number three, the letter R, podcast at bakermckenzie.com. Or contact us through the Baker McKenzie social media accounts. Use the hashtag resilience, recovery, renewal. More information on this topic is also available on our website at bakermckenzie.com.